Lives that remind us about God, meeting yourself in the sacred text. This is part two. I want to look at Esau. You can't look at Esau without looking a little bit at Jacob and Esau, but it's Esau, really, that we're going to be studying tonight. Anybody not have study notes? If you don't have them, we'll bring you some. We make them pretty available, though. It'd be hard to miss. The danger of a profane mind. I'm just going to look at Genesis 25, 29 to 34 to start things off. There'll be other texts, but this is the one I want to root our story in. Probably the most famous one about Esau that comes to mind. Genesis 25, 29 to 34. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew... Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name is Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright right now, your inheritance, your future. Sell me your birthright right now. And Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him, sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. So he didn't just get this stew, he got bread with it if that makes the deal sound any better to you. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he, Esau, he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Before we go more, and this isn't in your notes, It's important to see what this story is about. This is not about Esau doing something wicked rather than something righteous. There's nothing sinful in eating soup. Are we all agreed? This was not immorality. He didn't steal anything. So it's not about wickedness rather than doing good. It's not a story about that at all. It's a story about priorities. It's a story about knowing the value of things. It's a story about not recognizing when something not as important is embraced while something really important is missed. It's like staying home from church Sunday night to watch a hockey game when you could come and meet with Jesus. And you think, there's nothing wrong with the hockey game. This is too close to home, isn't it? I shouldn't be doing that. It's just that it's a poor choice. The things of God, eternity, my interest, something that's going to last, what, 90 minutes, and it's over. You could pick anything. I mean, I'm I just picked that, pulled that out of a hat. My point is, 
The story has a lot of relevance. You can apply it in a lot of different ways. When a poor choice is made in terms of recognizing the value of something. So Esau, he's still known as the prime example of a person who made one of the poorest trades in recorded history. He gives away something really precious for something not so precious, even though momentarily pleasant. But he doesn't see how poor this choice is. That's the amazing thing. How could he miss this? And so here we have a tremendous message. I think for the church today, for our lives today in this world, because you're making choices all the time, you can't do everything. You're constantly going in one direction or the other. We do all do it differently. How, how do we sort out the best from things that might be fleeting desires, even if they're not wicked desires? And what place do those things have, the ordinary things? How do we organize our lives? Well, a couple of things. Point number one. Esau's this great picture vividly illustrates the deceptiveness of our desires. 25.32, he comes in. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? So, So he's convinced that if he did not get what he wanted, whether he dies or not, he's convinced that if he doesn't get what he desires right now, What's the point in going on? He was hungry. He wouldn't have died if he had to wait an hour. The point of this is the intensity of the desire did not justify the foolishness of his actions. Esau gave in to this ridiculous trade because it justified what he wanted at that moment. So so here he is. He allows the pressure of the moment, instant gratification, the pressure of the moment to twist his perspective to make his decision seem more urgent. And we all experience this in all sorts of situations. The apparent urgency of the need for, for love and companionship is allowed to crowd out the need for a marriage license. The person's lonely. The urgency of the desire for revenge makes us justify. We'll probably call it justice, getting even. Somebody has to maintain justice. And you justify it because because there's a desire there that that presses urgency into it. This This is the nature of all human corruption since the fall of mankind. Three things. I said it in my Christian ed class. I'll say it here. If you don't know how life works in this world, there's only three steps. Here's the world. When we talk about worldliness... Here's what we mean. Happiness 
Personal happiness is the ultimate goal. It's only three steps. Feelings are the ultimate authority. Absolute value statements are the ultimate enemy. Happiness is the ultimate goal. I, I, can't, I can't get no satisfaction. Happiness is the ultimate goal. Feelings are the ultimate authority. Whether it's sexual orientation, whatever it is. It's the feelings rule. How dare you tell me I'm wrong in my own heart. I have, I have my truth, right? That's why don't come to me with these absolute value statements. What right do you have to tell me? Happiness is the ultimate goal. Feelings are the ultimate authority, unquestioned authority. Value statements are the ultimate enemy. So there's, there's Esau. It's the nature of the human condition since the fall of mankind. Our desires lie to us. That's the problem with that second step. Feelings being the ultimate authority. The Bible says my, my feelings are, here's what my heart is like. It's deceitful and desperately wicked. So is yours, by the way. That's being renewed gradually. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. Our feelings draw us by counterfeit happiness. This is the point Paul makes. The great text on this in the New Testament is Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. He's talking about, he's talking about the inner life of the unbeliever and the believer. It's, this is the classic psychology of what goes on in our hearts. This is what Paul's talking about. Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Well, how do they walk? Pagans. Well, in the futility of their minds. Is it just that? They need more information? They're not informed? Is it something IQ-like? Is that what he means? No, he's going he's to explain. 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Look what he says. They, still talking about the pagan, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, the senses, the feelings, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And then the contrast, that, that's not the way you learned Christ. Jesus doesn't work that way in our hearts, he says. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, What's, okay, what does it mean to be in Jesus and Jesus in me? Is it just something I sing about or claim? or How, how does anybody know? Is this a reality? Jesus in me, me in Jesus. Well, here's what happens, 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is now, here we go, is corrupt through deceitful desires. That's what's wrong with the whole human condition apart from Jesus Christ. We all have desires 
and they deceive us. They deceive us in thinking we must have things, we must have them right away, it must go our way. Feelings, the ultimate authority. Corrupt through deceitful desire. That's where the corruption comes from. The corruption comes from not just the acts of these people, but the desires that say, well, this is, this is, this is what I have to do. This is what makes my life work. This is what makes me happy. This is what fulfills me. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true holiness, righteousness, and holiness. Look at our, our Esau story. Is the soup and bread, is it worth his birthright, his whole inheritance? How many say no? Okay, now here's, here's the hard question. It's clearly not worth the birthright. What makes Esau think that it is? Well, his desires aren't functioning on a rational level, are they? It's what Paul calls being governed by deceitful desires, lying desires. Anybody reading the story now can see it, but Esau doesn't see it. Not at the moment. He doesn't see it. That's, that's the dangerous effect that we're meant to see played out in that Esau account. The New Testament, Paul gives you the, the psychology, the theology of it. Paul explains. But just the bald picture of it, look at Esau. One of the first marks of a renewed mind one of the first evidences that the Holy Spirit is working in your life and my life. We all talk about that, right? The Holy Spirit lives in here. Jesus lives in here by the Holy Spirit. We all talk about it. What's the proof of it? Well, one of the first evidences of it is we all recognize you don't trust the feelings of self anymore. That's not how you regulate your life. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what he reveals. Point number two, the sin of Esau. Let's look at Hebrews to see how it's described. Hebrews 12, 16, and 17. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, which is weird because as far as we know, Esau wasn't sexually immoral here. Why is that in there? And we're going to talk about that in a minute. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For we know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, oh, sure, later, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it. The it is repentance. He sought repentance. He sought it with tears. Why sexually immoral or unholy like Esau? And I think scholars debate it. I have commentaries with all sorts of answers. I think the most commonly understood answer is because 
because sexual desires are a perfect illustration of something that feels like it must be given into. They're compelling. And it's a perfect illustration of the kind of desires. In other words, we're not just talking about Esau and soup. We're talking about desires that pull us in different directions. And how do you handle that as a Christian? So the writer uses uh, two words to describe Esau's character in Hebrews. Sexually moral, I already talked about in 16. The writer of Hebrews knows he's leading up to the example of Esau, and no sin better typifies the danger of giving in to desires that feel immediately compelling than sexual ones. The other term is unholy, B. Verse 16, this comes from, it comes from a Greek word literally meaning basis or threshold. It refers to a line. Do you see the difference? Esau's governed feelings are the ultimate authority desires. When the writer starts talking about God's standards, he talks about a a line, a fixed standard, not to be crossed. It isn't dependent upon feelings. It's dependent upon revelation. That's that boundary that that word describes. Prime characteristic of Esau is he allows his own desires. Church, here's the warning. Esau allows his own desires to cross the boundary line of right and wrong. And he justifies it because what good's, a, what good's an inheritance? I'm dying here. It's got to be now. What we know is frequently no match for restraining what we crave. Desires unguarded will trump the clear will of God for those who haven't trained themselves in godliness and discipline. Three. Esau gives no thought to the future. See it in 31 and 32? Jacob, he's a slime. What a slime to do this to Esau. He knows his weakness and he plays it. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. I don't want Esau thinking about this. Now, just just do it. Now, now. That's the way the enemy is with desires. Don't be praying about this. Do it. You need this. This is right. This will help you. This will make you happy. Go, do it. And you look at this and you want to scream out, Esau. How are you going to feel about this tomorrow when you wake up? What are you going to do when you're hungry all over again and your birthright is gone forever? What part of your soul are you going to give away for the next bowl of soup when you're dying of hunger? Where's this going, Esau? You can disarm so much of Satan's power going over this in my class, the devices of the enemy over our lives. If he can keep us just thinking in the present tense, he wins every time. I gave this illustration. If you're in my class, I apologize. This isn't in your notes. David sins with Bathsheba, okay? Now, let me ask you, just pretend. Just pretend you could time travel, okay? 
And you go back and there's David and he gets up in the morning, I guess, and he sees on the roof, there's Bathsheba bathing. And if you could say to David, you can do this, you can keep looking at this woman. You're going to commit adultery with her. Before he does it, you're going to commit adultery with this woman, David. You're going to have her husband killed, David. You're going to get Bathsheba pregnant, David. And that baby's going to die, David. And what you're just getting into, David, is going to actually fracture and split the whole kingdom. Now, if you could do that, do you think David would have continued with his action? Never, never. This is how our desires work. Don't look at this, 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 and this. Just here, right here. I'm I'm setting a table for you. Now, do it now. That's how it works. Satan always works in the present tense with no thought of tomorrow. First John 2, 15 to 17. Here's the antidote. Okay, here's, here's the doctor coming with the antidote. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That that seems like a nervy. We'd almost say, boy, John, you're being awfully judgmental to people. 16, for all that is in the world, notice, desires, desires of the flesh, desires of the eye, pride in possessions. Desire, desire, pride. You see the inward stuff going on there? This is not from the Father. It's not the way he works. Whatever you desire, just go in that direction. You know that's not the Holy Spirit, he says. This is not the Father. But it's the world. That's their system. Happiness is the ultimate goal. What's the ultimate authority? Feelings, the ultimate enemy. Absolute value statements. This is what God says. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the passage is all about the deceitfulness of our desires. What about Jesus? So he faced... We, we, you know, we sing about the cross, but if you read the account, there's everything being despised by people, despised. I, I spent a lot of time going over references and just trying, trying to imagine what this felt like. Jesus comes into this world. I'm going somewhere with this. Don't, don't worry. Comes into this world, and all he's going to do is lay down his life Paul says, for his enemies, for sinners, for people who don't deserve it. Jesus knows why he came. He said, give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus has this understanding. I am here for the lost. 
And what happens is, toward the end of his life, he comes to redeem people. And you know what they did to Jesus? Just let it sink in. They spit on him. That's what it says. Before they crucified him, they spit on the one who came to die for them. They whipped him. They mocked him, spun him around. Who hit you, Jesus? He knows why he came, to show love and mercy and forgiveness to fallen people. And all of this is going on. Now, here's where I'm going. What, what does, how does Jesus carry through this? Well, he's God. He just, like Superman. No, it's not what the text says. Here's where Jesus drew strength. I want to read it to you. It's in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay, lay aside the sin, those desires, stay pure, stay clean, stay close to Jesus, run the race. How are we going to do that? Well, how did Jesus do it? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus. What about him? The founder and perfecter of our faith. Notice this next sentence. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand. How, what carried Jesus through? He's thinking about, he's thinking about future, not the moment future, who for the joy that was set before him. For the price Esau got for his birthright, it's in 34, Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is Abraham's great-grandson. Think of all that's been invested in this family line. Here's his epitaph. Ate, drank, rose, went his way. Gives up everything for a square meal. That's where those deceptive desires will end. Five. The day came when he regretted his trade. I got to hurry. It's in 17. He did regret it. Too late. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to re repent, though he, though he sought it with tears. And not in your notes, but what I wrote in the margin of my notes, to summarize, I knew I'd have to hurry. Living tritely isn't easily left behind. It, that becomes habitual. Living tritely, you like to think that you can just repent and get over that. You start following your desires and, and there's no end to that path. Well, there is, but not a good one. I love Paul's words in Romans 13, 11 to 14. Besides this, you know the time. He writes to Christians, you know the time. 
The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. He seems to, he seems to at least hint as he writes these Christians in Rome. He hasn't met them yet. But he writes them and, and, and he says, there's, there's a problem I'm seeing in the churches. It, Christians, they get sleepy. They, they get just a little bit careless. Not wicked, sleepy. Awake from your sleep. Your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. You have never been closer to eternity than tonight. Either your own departure from this world or Jesus' return. This is the closest you've ever been. The night is far gone. I love that. The day is at hand. So, let us cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, nor quarreling, nor jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision, look at this, for the flesh to gratify its, say the last word, desires. There's Esau's trouble. Paul says, it's not the day yet. We're not there yet. But he says, look, just cresting on the horizon, he says. We're getting close. The sun is just, it's going to come up. It's don't, don't. Make happiness the ultimate goal. Don't let desires be the ultimate authority. Honor the will of God and keep his word hidden in your heart. And everyone said? <laughs>